descending back first at 90 degrees down a steep wall. Uh, raise your hand if you've had a go at abseiling before at some time in your life. Okay, a few, nice and high. Okay, a few of us. Keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. Okay, keep your hand up if you enjoyed abseiling. One of my most bittersweet experiences as a teenager was when I abseiled for the first time. Uh, I was on this uh, outdoor adventure day with my school class, uh, and there I am at the top of this really tall tower. Uh, my entire class are down on the ground, and they're looking up at me, this little, little speck up there. The pressure is on as they're watching me. Uh, the instructor, who's a nice guy, and he, he, he put this harness around my waist. Uh, he roped it through, and he got me into position right on, on the edge of the tower. My knees were shaking. And he started to just slowly lower away. And I think I managed to get about 10 inches down the wall before my legs just froze. And I hung there suspended in midair, looking really pathetic to my class. And of course, them being my, my wonderful, supportive school friends, they took the opportunity to, to offer their support, looking up at me, you wuss, you wimp, what a loser. Oh, look, he misses his mummy. And the instructor looking down from the top, seeing me just quivering there, he, he sees that I'm just quietly crying in fear. And thankfully, he was a really nice guy. He, he shouted down to me from the top, Tim, listen to my voice. Ignore the guys down there. Just listen to me. And he started to reassure me, Tim, I put that harness on your waist. You're secure. You are not going anywhere as long as you just listen to my voice. And you continue to trust me. I put that rope around you, Tim. It's strong. It's not going to let you down, literally. Just listen to me. And he gently encouraged me, patiently, to endure, to persevere step by step by step down that wall. And before I knew it, I was on the ground. I was safe. To the embarrassment of my classmates, they were sure I wasn't going to make it. I, I had appeared so weak and pathetic in their eyes. But I still conquered that tower in the end only because the instructor assured me of how secure I was as I trusted his words, uh, as he encouraged me to persevere every step of the way. Well, the Church of Philadelphia that we have in these verses today, as Jesus writes this short letter to them, they look weak. They appear very weak to the culture around them. Unlike Sardis, if you were here last week as we worked through the letter uh, before to them, that church in Sardis, they, they seemed vibrant and strong and alive, but as we saw, actually, they were spiritually dead. And yet... Philadelphia, in contrast, this seemingly unimpressive, weak, powerless church, Jesus is really pleased with them. There's no criticism here. They're, they're doing well, but they have little power. 
they're weak, and they're bearing up against serious opposition. And so they, to keep on going, they need to hear the voice of their instructor. They need to be reminded of how secure they really are in him in order to take that next step for his sake and no victory in the end. So here we have this morning this letter that Jesus gives to this weak church. And in it, we have three symbols uh, to encourage them to keep on going. Uh, A key, a door, and a pillar. And as we look at these symbols in turn, I hope that we as a church will be encouraged to keep on going with Christ, especially in those times when we may appear weak to the world around us. First, uh, we have the key of David in chapter 3, chapter three verse, verse 7. And this key, it represents a sure authority. A sure authority. Let me just read from uh, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia writes, uh, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Uh, Those words, they might sound a bit familiar to us, not only from our, our, our New Testament reading, but actually from what we had read to us from Isaiah a moment ago as well. In Isaiah 22, Isaiah 600 years before Christ came, what was preaching against God's rebellious people in Judah. And he singles out one man in particular in those verses that we had read, uh, the steward of the royal palace in Jerusalem, this guy called Shebna. He's got a bit big for his boots, and God tells him, I'm going to remove you. I'm going to replace you with someone called Eliakim. Here we have it in Isaiah 22. Uh, verses 20 uh, to 23. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, he says to Shebna, and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open, and I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. Now, the city of Jerusalem that Eliakim would be a steward of, in Isaiah's day, that represented God with his people. It was his city in which his temple stood, his meeting place with Israel. And this Eliakim, with his new authority, he would decide who gets in and who's left out. He would be bestowed with this incredible authority by God. Authority. Authority, it can be a bit of a dirty word for us, can't it, these days? We, we associate it commonly with people who are far less than perfect. We get frustrated with those in authority quite a bit of the time. I, I do. Perhaps you can sympathize with these guys. Uh, the good people are, it's a town I've been trying to learn to pronounce all week, uh, Caracacula or something along those lines, in Mexico. And they got really fed up with their mayor back in the 1970s, his shady deals and his self-centered tactics. So eventually 4,000 citizens of this town, they marched down to the town hall one evening They seize the mayor, get him to sit behind his desk, and they make him eat 12 pounds of bananas before signing his resignation that very evening. I mean, here here in 
in Malaysia, we're, we're quite used to seeing those in positions of great power misusing their authority for their own selfish ends, aren't we? And that affects us. It, it makes us more suspicious of, of authority and those who hold it. Well, all human authority has flaws. All human authority will end sooner or later, including even that of Eliakim that we just saw in Isaiah, this described as a peg secured in a firm place. Isaiah actually goes on to say of him in chapter 25, the peg driven into a firm place will give way. It will be cut off. It will fall. Eliakim's reign, his authority would be temporary. Whereas Jesus described like Eliakim here in this letter, he's also described as the holy and true one. Full stop. See, unlike our human authorities that are flawed, they're open to corruption, Jesus alone is the Holy One. Above the corruption of our world, as God's Son exalted to the highest place, His words are trustworthy, and He is in control, ultimately. Uh, The keys of David, that authority, belong to Him. His authority is everlasting, and it is great, not temporary. His decisions cannot be thwarted, and that should be a great encouragement for us as a church as we continue through these verses. He is the one who can open and no one can shut, who shuts and no one can open. And it's that very fact, actually, that makes the next symbol that we have in these verses so meaningful for us, his church. It's the symbol of an open door in verses 8 to 10. The the open door. It represents our assurance as Christians, uh, our sure access to heaven, our sure access to heaven. Uh, The only other open door that we have actually in the whole book of Revelation, just have a quick look in chapter 4, the next chapter, verse 1, and John says, After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. Again, it's a door that's open and so granting access for John to the heavenly realms through which he can receive this great revelation. Well, Jesus says to this weak church back in 3 verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. That's a great encouragement to this weak but faithful church. Jesus says, Your access to heaven is secure as you identify yourselves with me, no matter how you might look to the world outside. I wonder, on what basis do we trust that we know God and that we know him as our heavenly father? How do we know that God will hear our prayers? What do we trust in to know that that's true? Jesus says he holds the key to the place where God dwells. He alone has the authority to grant us an open door which no one can shut. Why does it all depend on him? Well, it's because Jesus and Jesus alone as the holy and true one is the one who has actually gone before us to open up the way. See, none of us are acceptable to God in our own strength. We like to think we are sometimes, but we're not. He is pure, and we are not. We might think we're pretty good compared to others. 
You know, we, we pay our taxes and we treat our neighbors with respect most of the time. We're not really that bad, are we? Well, friends, God made us to love him first with our, our every thought, our every word, our, our every deed. Just, just imagine, just for a moment, that everyone in this room could see every thought that you've dwelt on and you've delighted in in your mind in the past month. Every thought is somehow just displayed for all of us to see. Every thought exposed. Would you be able to hold up your head high? Friends, if that was true of me and you could see my every thought from the past month, I know I couldn't. Well, God, he sees it all. It's not just our best behavior on the outside. He sees us for who we really are from the heart. The wickedness that that we try so hard to hide from others. And that means we're unworthy to know him. That means we're not able in our own strength to have a relationship with him. And instead we receive what, what the Bible calls the wages for sin, for rejecting God as our God and living instead by our own wills from the heart. We're cut off from God, and we face the threat of being shut out, of having the door closed from his good and wonderful presence and provision forever. But Jesus is different. Jesus is the holy and the true one, the only one who ever lived who loved God from the heart. But Jesus, in love for sinners like us, he went to the cross. He died the death we deserved under God's judgment for our sin. He gave his own life, his righteous blood for us as he hung there so that we might have the hope of being pure, of being acceptable to God again. Not by our works, not by what we do, but by faith by trusting in what Jesus has done. And because Jesus, he had no sin, the penalty for sin, which is death, it couldn't hold him. He rose victorious and is now exalted, and that is why he has the key. That is why he has such splendid authority now as the Son of God, because he alone is worthy and has gone to heaven on our behalf, opening up the way. And that's why he can encourage this church that as they know him and they stick by him, they have that promise of knowing God as their heavenly father. They have that promise that they can pray to him and he will hear them. They have that promise that he is working in all things, no matter how hard it might seem, for their ultimate good. Because they belong to Jesus And so they show that by their willingness to endure weakness and suffering if it meant holding on to him and living with him as Lord. So Jesus says to them in verse 8, have a look, verse 8. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my words, not denied my name. They seem so unimpressive to the world around them. They're the small rabble of nobodies in a big and busy city in Philadelphia. uh, And and the others around them just seeing them as pathetic losers. Right at the bottom of the pile, socially. 
And we know they were opposed. They were hard up against the wall. In verse 9, Jesus mentions those who opposed them. He describes them as those who say that they are Jews but are not and lie. Oh, actually, this group in Philadelphia, they thought they were God's people, that they knew him, that they belonged to him. But Jesus describes them instead as a synagogue of Satan. They don't belong to God. They belong to the enemy because they oppose Jesus and his church. They're like a bully picking on the smallest kid in the playground. Now, this, this weak church, they could have appeared much stronger, much more impressive in the eyes of these Jews and others. If, if only they had just ignored a few things in their Bibles. They'd stopped declaring the truth of the gospel. Or, or at least just, you know, gone quiet on the harder bits that our world doesn't like to hear, like sin and judgment. Just, if only they'd stop telling others about Jesus for who he truly is, as our only hope for forgiveness and new life with God. Then these religious Jews in Philadelphia, they probably would have stopped giving them such a hard time. But no, they wouldn't shut up about Jesus. They wouldn't stop witnessing to him. They wouldn't deny his name. They chose instead to accept hardship. And Jesus commends them. He says, the door to heaven is fixed open. I fixed it open for you. But for these religious Jews, who look strong to them in their situation and oppose them, well, see what Jesus says of them at the end of verse 9. I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. That's a real slap in the face for these, these false Jews in Philadelphia, because as far as they were concerned, that promise of, of being exalted over one's enemies, that was their promise. That was a promise for them. See, God had said to the Jews of Isaiah's day by Isaiah, back in Isaiah 60 verse 14, it's coming up on the screen. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. But these religious Jews in Philadelphia would not inherit that promise. They were false. They were liars. Because they rejected their own Messiah, Jesus, our only Savior and King. In their sinful pride, they wanted to rely on their shallow obedience to God's law, to rules, even though none of us can keep that from the heart. And so Jesus says, you will fall at the feet of, well, not just Jewish, but also Gentile Christians that you've oppressed. You will have to acknowledge them as God's true people as they were true to me, to Jesus and that great turning of the tables, it's going to happen one day. I've met some faithful saints who've told me the story of how they were evicted from their own church building by members of their own denomination because they refused to stop preaching the gospel. They refused to deny Jesus' name. They held on to him, they kept his word, and they suffered for it. Oh, no doubt they looked very weak, powerless in the eyes of others. They lost their church building. 
And yet at the end of the age, Jesus will honor them for sticking with him. And all those in their religious ways who oppress them will be brought low. Friends, no matter how weak we might appear as God's people in this life, and no matter how strong the opponents might seem, Jesus is Lord. He holds the key. He has opened the door. And he will honor those who have honored him, even at great cost. It's it's not just religious opponents, though, that need to fear Jesus and his judgment. Have a look in verse 10. See, as he continues to encourage this weak church, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial, the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And this, this hour of trial, it's actually repeated throughout the book of Revelation. At one particular point, we see it very strongly, is in Revelation 18. It's just verses 10 and 17 to 19, Revelation 18. Uh, we read, They will stand off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. In a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. All shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? They threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. We're given this picture of the great city Babylon, which in Revelation it represents humanity in rebellion against God refusing to acknowledge him and instead living for and worshipping the wealth of his creation, of this world. And Babylon is wiped out in a single hour. All those found guilty of rejecting God and living for the things of his world instead, for rejecting Jesus as his Son, our Savior and Lord, cast down, laid waste, in a single hour, in a very short time. But for those who have recognized him, like this weak church, Jesus promises them, I will spare you from that. You won't have to face it. Maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. It is great to have you here with us. But you know you haven't recognized Jesus as Lord in your heart. You know that you're still in the driving seat of your life and you don't want to surrender it to him. Can you just think carefully about what Jesus says to his church in verse 10? That only those who by faith submit to him and receive life in his name will be spared this great trial to come. The world in sin will crumble away. And the door to God and all his goodness, the relationship we were made for that Jesus offers to us now, that door on the day of his judgment will be closed forever. Friends, heed this warning. Don't reject Jesus until it's too late and you're shut out from his kingdom. Well, thankfully, that's not the case for this weak church in Philadelphia Jesus has no fear for them. There are only commendations and encouragements. 
I wonder, does that surprise us? This, he's commending this church. This is the kind of church that Jesus is impressed with. They're not big. They're not strong. They're not influential or respected in their local culture. They're small and weak and despised and opposed. You know, plenty of big, influential churches out there. Thousands of members that seem so impressive to our world. I wonder, do we wish we here at Smack looked a little bit more like them sometimes? Then we would matter more. Then we would be more able. Then we would be count more in God's purposes. Friends, Jesus doesn't care about the size of our church, or, or how impressive we look to the world out there. He, he cares about faithfulness to him and his word. And, and if that does make us comparatively big in number and, and influential in our culture, then great. But it may well not. What does Jesus command this weak, faithful church to do? Sort out their public image? Look strong to the world? No. In fact, his only command for them, it's not very impressive at all. Have a look in verse 11. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Basically, Jesus says, hang in there. Your victory is assured as you remain faithful to me. Your crown is waiting, so hang in there. Just remain faithful to me, even if that means appearing weak. That's all they have to do. A few years ago, I was on a, a plane coming back to Malaysia. I'd spent a little bit of time back in the UK. Uh, and uh, the, where I was seated, I was sitting next to this uh, fairly senior gentleman, and he was quite friendly. We started talking, the usual conversation. Oh, you know, where, where are you from? What do you do? Uh, and I found out that he's a retired sports coach. Uh, he had been pretty successful uh, in his work. And, of course, in turn, he asked me the same question. He said, so, Tim, what, what do you do? And so I, I told him. I said, I, I, I'm training to be a pastor. Uh, I work for a church in KL. And when he heard those words... He said back to me uh, in the most condescending tone, what did you do and who did you meet that led you to spending the rest of your life doing that? It, it caught me off guard. I only met this guy five minutes ago. He was so unimpressed. It looked so pathetic to him as a Christian. And at that very point, I felt, right, change subject. I, let, what can I do? I, I, I'll start explaining how, I, actually, as, as a result of coming out to Malaysia to minister, I've, I've traveled extensively around Southeast Asia, unlike my friends back in the UK. In fact, I, you know, I, I also, I studied computer science at a British university situated in the city of Oxford. <laughs> I was so tempted to shut up about Jesus. Stop talking about Christian things. I'm sure we can sympathize with that. We don't look like being looked down on, do we? 
being seen as, as weak and pathetic by those whom we meet of the world. And maybe some of us here today, we're, we're facing opposition and shame right now by, on the part of our family or our friends because you love Jesus and they don't agree with that. You're living for him and it goes against their wishes and their beliefs and their concerns for you and they think you're wasting your life. Jesus says, hold fast to me because in me victory is assured. The crown of life is just waiting for you. Glory and honor on the day of my return is waiting for you. The door to God's kingdom, I fixed it open for you. And when his kingdom comes in all its fullness, nothing will remove us from that place of great rejoicing. And that, and that is what the final symbol that we have in this letter represents. The steadfast pillar in verses 11 to 13. Our, our sure future in glory. Our sure future in glory. Let me just read from verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God's. It's going to come a time and soon when those who have trusted Christ will be firmly fixed in the glory of God's presence. And it will be soon. Remember what Jesus said in the previous verse, I'm coming soon, so hold fast. Before we know it, he'll be here. It's like a child waiting for Christmas. It feels like it's never coming, it's never coming. I can't wait, they say they're they're ticking off the days on the calendar to the 25th of December. And yet, from an adult perspective, Christmas is here before we know it, isn't it? We hardly have time to get ready for it. Jesus says, the time of my return, it's coming soon. And in the light of eternity, he's going to be back in no time at all. And if we're found in him on that final day, then nothing will remove us from his presence. We'll, we'll be like a pillar, fixed, firm, immovable. Verse 12, never shall he go out of it. I don't know how that thought strikes you. If you are a Christian, you are trusting in Christ. Do you rejoice at the idea of that eternal future with Christ and his people in heaven? I think sometimes we have a pretty dim view of eternity with God. We don't think about it. We don't treasure it. We don't look forward to it and allow that hope to sustain us nearly enough because our hearts are not yearning so much for that great day. Instead, we're distracted by the desires of this fading world around us. We desire to be strong and respectable now in the world's eyes rather than to be great on that day. And so we deny Jesus if it means avoiding looking weak to others. When I first joined the officer training corps in, in, at university, it's this little club that they put together if you're thinking about joining the British Army. Uh, it gives you a taste of what's involved, uh, training as a soldier. Well, I joined this officer training corps. Uh, corps and uh, at the very beginning of our orientation, a small group of us guys uh, were shuffled into this room 
And we had to swear an oath of allegiance uh, to become reservists in the British Army, which is, which is basically the first step to joining the club. And the first question our commanding officer, he, he asked us was, and it was, he said it in a pretty sarcastic way, are any of you members of the Church of England? Because for some reason the oath was slightly different if you were. I don't know why, but it was. Now, being a member of any church in the UK at the age of 21 is not a sure way to be popular and to look strong. I'm with this fresh group of recruits, and there's a lot of ego in the room. So the CO asks us one by one, are you, are you, are you? And it comes to me, are you? What did I do? Well, I denied any association with the church. I didn't want to appear weak, unimpressive on my first day at boot camp. My heart was in the wrong place. It's delighting, not in Jesus, but in the shallow praise of men. I wonder, do we need to repent of that? Seeking the praise of men. And so, going against our allegiance to Christ as the one who lived and died to purchase us for all eternity. Oh, the Philadelphians, they had little power. So small in the eyes of their peers. They refused to deny Jesus' name. And so he delights in them. He commends them as his weak but faithful, precious people. He cares about them. And in fact, we see how precious this faithful church is to Jesus in their weakness. Look in the rest of verse 12. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. You know, you can tell if something is precious to a person, can't you, by the fact that they've labeled it with their own name. Andrew cares a lot about his stapler upstairs in the office. Andrew's one of the pastors here, if you don't know. He cares a great deal about his office stapler. You know how I know that? It's because as it sits on my office desk at the moment, it's got this white label stuck on it, blazing black letters. This stapler belongs to Andrew on Andrew's desk. He's put his name on his stapler. It's precious to him, and we pray for him. Well, Jesus cares deeply for his church, for those who are willing to appear weak if it means being faithful to him and being known as his. And if that is us at Smack, and I really hope it is, we will bear both his name and the name of his father for all eternity. The pain and the suffering that we endure in this world, the weakness that we are represented by for trusting Christ and persevering with him, that's history. That'll be gone in a moment. As instead we dwell in the security and joy of God's presence together forevermore, knowing and delighting in the God that made us to know him and his rest where we can have true peace. Appearances can be deceptive. Jesus says, as he says to the other churches in these letters, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. 
We're reminded that these words of Jesus for the Philadelphians carried by his own spirit, they're not just for them, of course, they're for his church in every age. Do we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying by the word to us here at Smack this morning? Will we be those who are willing to appear weak and small if it means holding on to him and not denying his name? Friends, appearances can be deceiving. Or those who appear so weak now can be very strong in the eyes of God if they know his son. We've got to resist that temptation to forsake him so that we look impressive in the eyes of our world. Got to hold fast. Got to remember what will help us to do that is as we remember how Jesus encourages his church here as he gets them to take their eyes off their situation and he gets them to look at him to see what they have in him. He's got the key in his hands, the keys to the kingdom of God. He alone keeps the door open. He gives us access to heaven. And it is through him that we will be made a steadfast pillar, immovable from the eternal rest God has made us for. Jesus alone will bring us to that great victory. And so he says to his church, keep on folding fast to me, to me, for he is true. And so forsake all others where necessary, if it means confessing him. Well, let's pray that he would strengthen us to do that as his church and delight in the security that we have in him in the coming week. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that wonderful truth that this world cannot see, that though we as your people may appear weak, if we have Christ, we are strong. We thank you for these encouragements from you, Lord, these symbols that testify to who you are and what you have done and what treasure we have by your grace, as we hold fast to you. Thank you that, Lord Jesus, you have the key. You've opened the door. You are the one who will make us a strong pillar for eternity, enjoying the rest we were made for. Lord, help us to be mindful of these encouragements when we are tempted to forsake you, when we are tempted to to delight in looking strong in the eyes of our world rather than confessing your name, delighting in how great you are and being about your work of your gospel with all whom we should meet. So, Lord, please empower us by your grace in our weakness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.